From Welcome Villain Films, the studio that brought you the horror hit Malum, as well as Beaten to Death and Hunter Killer, comes their newest nightmare, Mind, Body, Spirit, now available on digital. Directed by Alex Haynes and Matthew Miranda, and produced by Dan Asma, Mind, Body, Spirit follows Anya, an aspiring yoga influencer, as she embarks on a ritual practice left behind by her estranged grandmother. What starts as a spiritual self-help guide quickly evolves into something much more sinister. As Anya becomes increasingly obsessed with the mysterious power of the practice, she unwittingly unleashes an otherworldly entity that begins to take control of her life and her videos. Now, Anya must race to unlock the truth before her descent into madness threatens to consume her mind, body, and spirit. During its festival tour, which stops at Chattanooga Film Festival and the Unnamed Footage Festival, Mind, Body, Spirit garnered praise from critics who call it a found footage version of Hereditary and a knockout found footage horror movie for the live stream era. Experience the first ever yoga-themed found footage horror film and don't miss the film viewers have called extremely frightening and upsetting. Available now on digital anywhere you rent or buy movies online, including Prime Video and Apple Plus. Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. From Nice Guy Productions overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is the fun-sized version of Postmortem AMA, where you can ask me anything. And here with me today with your questions is none other than producer Joe Russo. Joe, how are you? You're getting over pneumonia, I know. I am, yes, but I am uh, I am healthy again, uh, and I appreciate all of our fans who reached out on, on social media to ask how I was doing. It, it was not COVID-related. I just gave myself pneumonia the classic way, uh, a, cold, <laughs> a cold that moved into my lungs, but uh you know, it was, uh, it wasn't that bad. It was, it was very mild. Um, so, but I appreciate everybody reaching out and whatnot. And, you know, Mick, I know I, this, this happened this week and I know something that you care about, uh, Los Angeles Super Bowl champions. <laughs> uh, well, as I posted on Facebook, I've never seen a Super Bowl in my life. That's amazing to me. Like not, you've never even seen a halftime show. No. And wow. people talk about tuning in for the commercials. Why would I want to watch commercials, no matter how entertaining they might be? They're still trying to sell me shit. Yeah. Yeah. True. True. I, I mean, also now they're all online and they're online ahead yeah. of the game. So it's like, what, what's the point even, you know? Yeah. But even with that, I'm not going out of my way to watch advertising. I saw all the good trailers for the movies coming up before the game started. So it was like, no when doubt. they came on, when they came on in the game, I was like, oh yeah, there's the Jurassic world trailer. There's the Nope trailer, you know? <laughs> um, anyway. Oh, well. Yep. Yep uh, to Nope. Yeah. Yep to, I think it looks pretty good. It so. does look good, but I, I, I try to avoid trailers before seeing the movies because all of them have spoilers. Yeah. But that, I have, I, I do think, and I feel purposefully they kept a lot hidden probably in that, uh, uh, yeah. like, but I, but, but Hey, it's a big original horror sci-fi movie coming out in the summer. That alone is something to be celebrated. I am cheering. Yes. Uh, well let's, uh, let's, let's speaking of cheering. Let's, uh, let's, Rah, rah, some of these questions, huh? <laughs> All right, here we go. Post-game questions, yes. Yes, all right. Stan asks, 
what film from your childhood still haunts your dreams? You know, it's interesting. It's a movie nobody's ever heard of. But when I was little, I saw a movie where a snake was crawling into a bedroom window and it freaked me out. And wow. I thought it was called The Black Snake. And for years, I tried to look it up once I was old enough to, to do such things. And I never saw it anywhere. And then I was watching Flipping Channels one afternoon years ago, and on comes this cheesy universal programmer called Cult of the Cobra. Mm. And it had that scene in it. And oh, it no. gave, me, gave me that frisson that I'd had as a child just because of that linkage. Oh, so wow. that's the only one that really kind of got me in that visceral sense that stuck with me into adulthood. Are you, are you afraid of snakes at all? I don't love snakes. I'm not afraid of them, but, uh, you right. know, it, right. it's interesting. We went on a trip to Bali, Bali once, and there is part of the experience for uh, travelers is snake handling. And women are much more <laughs> willing to do that than men are, I, I discovered. Interesting. These, these locals, you know, these Indonesian locals will yeah. have snakes and they offer them up to the tourists to do that. And it's like men are much more just like women don't uh, have as much trouble getting shots at the doctor as men do. <laughs> <laughs> that's, fa that's fair. So, so when they tried to hand you the snake, you were like, no, no, I saw a cult of the cobra as a child. I can't. <laughs> exactly. I can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> There you go. Uh, well, I'm glad. I'm glad that the the you were able to face your childhood fears and yeah, the trauma has dissipated since. Yeah. That's good. Uh, <laughs> all right, Carl asks, "What do you think is Alfred Hitchcock's most underrated film?" Is it possible that the most influential filmmaker uh, in American? cinema history has any underrated films. I mean, obviously <laughs> there are classics and there are some that are not classics. His sure. own favorite was The Trouble with Harry, which not many people uh, today have seen or are familiar with at all. It, it's not my favorite of his films, but it's his. it was his favorite. But his last movie, Frenzy, is a great film. And it was him being contemporary in a way he had not um, in the 70s, it, it was rated R, it had nudity and sexuality in it, which his films were always kind of coded sexuality sure. because of the times, the censorship. and Because the, of the Hayes Code. The Hayes Code, which was in effect for a long time. Yep. But once the ratings board was created um, and uh, it allowed for a broader expression without as much self-censorship, so Frenzy is something, not everybody thinks of it as a classic, but it's one of my favorites of his films. It was one that I saw new in the theaters. And before that, I'd seen Psycho when I was a child, when we saw it at the drive-in theater. But Frenzy is probably not one of the, the critical favorites of his oeuvre, but it's certainly one of mine. And maybe it was a little underrated, but... Uh, it's hard to underrate a, <laughs> the a greatest director icon. of all time. Yeah, no, <laughs> that's that's fair. But it sounds like you honed in on 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 two potential candidates. So you know, if you guys haven't seen those movies yet, check them out. Check them out. All right, Ricard wants to know 
which of the universal Frankenstein monster movies do you like best? Now, I know we've said plenty of times that, you know, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein is arguably one of your favorite movies of all time. But one of my most seen, certainly. Okay, fair yeah. enough. Well, I, I think that those two things correlate, but <laughs> they do. But, but <laughs> I'm going to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tweak that because that, that would be the obvious answer here. Which of like the original, you know, uh, Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, Son of Frankenstein, like which of which of the actual horror ones, non-comedic Frankenstein movies? Well, you don't even need to make that that uh, distinction because even though I love Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, it's not the best Frankenstein movie by sure. any means. Sure, and the first one was the first, and it still holds up as an amazing groundbreaking piece of horror cinema. Um, but maybe even better is Bride of Frankenstein. You know, they, they started to become a franchise where they'd throw in a lot more monsters. See Dracula, the mummy, the hunchback all yeah. together. In, all of them. Yeah. In the, Aven the Avengers uh, yeah. formula. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But you know, uh, Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein are still, incredibly potent bride of frankenstein added well for one thing there was music synchronous music which they didn't have in 1931 yeah and that score is magnificent but there's also a sense of humor yes. that um was not present in a lot of the earliest universal horror films the original frankenstein dracula the mummy are very serious and straightforward movies but there's a camp element in Bride of Frankenstein, as well as some genuine humor that is a big part of the reason the movie is special and doesn't just feel like capitalizing on the success of its predecessor from four years previous. I, I, I mean, look, I love those first three, those first two movies a lot, but one of my favorites, I still love Son of Frankenstein. I just um, watched that a couple of days ago, coincidentally. And it's oh, yeah. great. I mean, yeah. you know, it's, it is great. And it, I think, you know, one of the reasons I, I, I love it too is because it brings Igor into the mix. Yeah. You know? yeah. Uh, <laughs> and It's and, still fresh. And it's the last time Karloff played the monster. And little Donnie Dunnigan is so great. Well, hello. Ah, I always make fun of that too. <laughs> I but it's really that a lot, and Crystal constantly forgets what it's from. And she, <laughs> anyway, yeah, it's. <laughs> uh, I enjoy that movie, and also it is the inspiration, really, for Young Frankenstein. Mil Absolutely, Frankenstein. yeah. Uh, so there's there's a lot lot to love in that one. Um, but yeah. yeah, I mean, they're 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 all they're all pretty special. They're all special, but the first three stand head and toes, uh, head and shoulders, head and toes as well, uh, uh, above the ones that followed, just because they didn't feel so much like franchises as elements of the story that wanted and needed to be told afterwards. I agree. Uh, Christian asks, there isn't a brutal Midwest winter that goes by without me watching Storm of the Century. Are there any winter horror flicks that you guys must watch for every winter season, even in sunny California? Well, anytime I get the chance to watch John Carpenter's The Thing is, uh, you know, there, I can't think of a better frozen tundra movie, horror movie than, than that. I agree. And it is a timeless classic for 
not only a reason, but for many reasons. It is one of a kind, it's very special. Storm of the Century is interesting because I was originally offered that. Um, were you? When the miniseries was being planned. But at the time we were planning to make Desperation as a feature film. Huh. And so we were actually in unofficial pre-production working on that, assuming it was going to go forward. And so I had to back out. And that was the, I believe the first time that Steve worked with Craig Baxley as a director on that. And it was a hugely expensive miniseries. It cost $40 million. Oh my gosh. Just to give you some perspective, The Shining was 27, no, 20, 21 million. Wow. So literally almost double. Almost double. Yeah. Wow. 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 Yeah. And and speaking of The Shining, there's there's another great example of a wintry set uh, movie that, that you'll want a blanket for. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's for sure. Yeah. And living in those wintry climes when we were making our version of The Shining uh, will always be memorable and not necessary. I mean, the making of the movie was 100% pleasure. The living in the frozen winter was less than 100% pleasure. Yeah, you're a California boy. That's that's not uh, ideal. <laughs> Born and raised. But for it seemed like for years, the only times I would work out of town would be during the winter in Toronto or Vancouver or Colorado or someplace freezing until I did a, a pilot that it it shot in the winter, but it was in Australia. So it was summer there. And it, I, I somehow uh, won that uh, bet against the odds uh, of the planet uh, betting <laughs> against me. Yeah. Well, we, when we shot uh, the Bruce Willis movie, we were in Cincinnati, Ohio. In, oh boy. Uh, beginning of February. And, you know, the two days I was on set, I, I you know, I grew up on the East Coast. So I've, I've known cold and I've known cold winters, but uh, I haven't been in one in a very long time. And oh boy, like I was frozen to the bone. And somehow in this abandoned playing card factory that we were shooting in, inside was colder than outside. <laughs> <laughs> so there was literally no escape from the cold unless you you know, snuck into the producers or actors trailers or something. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was a pretty, pretty tough go. Uh, The coldest I've ever been was I, I made the documentary on the thing, the making of the thing and being on that location on a glacier, um, you know, it it was almost to the point where I'd have drunk my own urine to keep warm. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Fortunately, I didn't have to. Well, you know, that that cold that you felt, I think you can feel in the movie. So clearly it was worth the, uh, you know, the expense. Oh, uh, definitely. And, you know, they they refrigerated the sound stages so that people's breath would be seen on camera. Yeah. Yeah. I, I literally just had to cut that out of the script because uh, they didn't want to do that with the soundstage they want to shoot on. So. Uh, they do it CG now anyway. I, yeah, yeah, that's what I said. But eh, anyway, I digress. It would have been fun to do it the practical way. Uh, right. Anyway, all right. Next question. Rob asks, as a horror kid of the 70s in the pre-home video days, one of the highlights was made for TV movies. The Night Stalker, Don't Be Afraid of the Dark, Satan's Triangle, and Gargoyles are among my favorites. 
What are some of your favorites? Any underseen gems? Well, you kind of hit all the good ones. You know, of course, <laughs> there were the there were the miniseries and the like that started to happen in the in the late 80s and, and into the 90s. But those 70s one, other than Duel, which is the greatest of them all, um, I think that's a, a really good handful of examples, the best examples of, of what television horror had to offer then. Because in the 70s, a lot of the horror movies made for television were just made by journeyman directors who would, from a number of TV shows, it could be a drama, it could be a Western, it could be a sitcom. They, a director was just somebody you hired despite um, what specialty he might have, uh, particularly the horror movies because they didn't respect them. So right. it was just a job for a director. There weren't really horror movie directors uh, in those days other than, well, Toby Hooper's Salem's Lot is certainly something very special compared Absolutely. to the other horror of the era. But an, but an anomaly by comparison, really. Completely. And John yeah. Carpenter did Someone Is Watching Me. Uh, yeah. And that is a great thriller. But also, Hitchcock to your point, he also did the Elvis. TV, yeah, yeah. Right? And that's so. also great. Yeah. But well, it's also John, something. John's great. So. Yeah. And he has a passion for rock and roll. And, and you know, Kurt Russell was magnificent in that. Yeah. But as far as the genre movies of the period, and that's kind of getting into the later era, the end of the 70s. But sure. Most of the TV movies of the era were just made by journeyman directors who didn't have a passion for it. It right. was an assignment. It was a game. Yeah. It was a game. Yeah. You know, I got to tell you about, um, and our engineer, Chris Price, who's, who's listening right now, will probably be able to relate. When I was in film school, uh, the screenwriting professor, Philip Taylor, he had written a TV movie. It's not the 70s, but it was 1990. Uh, and I'm sure you saw it because Toby Hooper directed it. Uh, it was called I'm Dangerous Tonight, starring Madchen. Uh, from- Madchen Amick and Tony Perkins. Yes, yes. Yeah. Lots of, lots of Mick Garris uh, crossover there. And it's I, the I- same year as Psycho 4. That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So anyway, yeah. that was, it was, that was uh, like the movie. He was basically like, here's the script, here's the movie, did like a whole little class on it and stuff. And it was so funny, like, you know, because obviously Toby Hooper was, to me at that point, Salem's Lot, Poltergeist, and Texas Chainsaw. And here he is doing this TV movie about a killer dress. For USA (laughs) Network, yeah. Right, yeah. But uh, uh, but that's a really good one. But again, it's a little uh, after the era. That, sure, uh, sure. Uh, I was just curious uh, what your what your the thoughts are because obviously not only did you work with Anthony Perkins that year, but you know uh, you'd go on to cast its star shortly thereafter. And uh, and I cast Toby in Sleepwalkers as well. There you, there you go. <laughs> but Toby was a very dear friend, but we definitely had our conversations about Tony and about Machen and all. And uh, I really like it. You know, it's it's really not what you expect from a TV movie because it's, no. Toby has a personality, even when he's doing an assignment that he didn't originate, um, he brings himself into it. And, uh, and that's always a good thing. Yeah. And I think even then you could tell that Machen was going to be a star. Uh, yeah. So. Yep. Uh, all right. Next up, Hart Vig asks, you've said many, many times you're not interested in superhero movies, but do you plan to see Sam Raimi's Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness? 
I will see anything Sam Raimi does. Yeah, that's a good answer. I like that. Yeah, uh, yeah. Did you see you know, Spider-Man movies? Of course I did. Yeah, yeah. They're so fun. I was I caught some of two over the weekend. And uh, oh, it's before they were overrun by the universe connections, you know, right. where it, oh. before they really felt franchised out to the point of of it just being all about um cash registers ringing right you know there right. were stories that he wanted to tell you could see sam's personality in there yeah um, you know uh sam is another one like toby who brings his game yeah. his a game to everything he does and commits to it and i love his work you know i know sam he's a great guy and uh you know i would uh, absolutely you know i've worked with him i've cast him as an actor twice right. in, that's in, true in and, and 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 vice versa that's uh, right. Yeah, <laughs> I'm in the quick and the dead, but I dare you to spot me. <laughs> I, I saw you. Uh, no, but here's, but you know, I'll I'll tell you. I saw the, the the new trailer for, you know, Doctor Strange this weekend, and I mean, it looks great. I mean, visually, it looks stunning. Uh, you know, obviously, the title is evocative of Lovecraft. Um, you know, and it looks like it's going to have some real monsters and horror in it. So it, it could be a really interesting Marvel movie. You know, well, Sam which, is a great filmmaker who has a cinematic personality, and that's something I think all filmmakers strive to achieve, and a a rare few do. And Sam is one of those who has. Well, there you go. Mick Garris is going to watch a Marvel movie this year. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I have less fondness for Benedict Cumberbatch after Power of the Dog, but uh, oh no, oh yeah. Well, he's still a pretty phenomenal actor, though. Yeah, but he beat a horse and he gelded uh, a. Uh, a steer and I know, uh, I know. for I know. our cinematic entertainment i'm sorry that's not something i can i can uh condone i i watch. if i was an oscar voter that would not be getting my pick but uh you know yeah. i digress um i'm not an oscar voter <laughs> <laughs> it's not nominated for the wga i don't believe so uh anyway nath wants to know what was it like making sleepwalkers with having to wrangle all those cats. <laughs> it was amazingly less difficult than you think it was. Now, a well, lot of that was done second unit by Dick Stenta, who was our line producer. Who might and have a very different answer to that question. <laughs> he might, but I did a lot of the work with the cats um, right. and with all of the cats. And it was surprisingly good. The trainers, unfortunately, whose names I've forgotten in the 30 years since we made yeah. the film, um, did an amazing job. The cats were incredibly well-trained. Um, and I, I've talked about this before, but we hired nine different cats to play Clovis to do different actions. But nice. it turns out the one named Sparks could do all of them. Huh. It was a genius cat. And there are only two, maybe three shots of a, a mean looking hissing Clovis that are not Sparks, but every wow. other shot is Sparks the going Sparks through was the, the hero cat. He was the hero cat. He was indeed. And, yeah. you know, he's the one who went through the window and the broken glass. And he's the one who's purring in the police station in, in huh. the officer's arms, all that stuff. But, you know, there were a lot of, they were very well trained, very well handled. Um, you know, the scene outside of the Brady house where all the cats are in the beginning of the movie, they're all outside watching and they're on the roof and everything. Well, they all had little harnesses on and 
those little harnesses were attached to the uh, lawn and uh, and things like that. They were trained to be able to be comfortable in these little harnesses until their break time when they'd be relieved and they could run around and eat and drink and all that stuff. That's amazing. Wow. Yeah. That's the guy that that must have been something else. Um, yeah. But- well, Dick, Dick had longer hours with the cats than I did, <laughs> but he kind of deserved it. He was kind of a grumpy guy. Ah, well, there you go. <laughs> Uh, one more sleepwalkers question. Uh, Colin asks, were the sleepwalkers truly the last of their kind? Well, that's a Stephen King question, but yeah. uh, um, I think it's open for interpretation. Uh, I would think that throughout the entire planet, could Charles and Mary Brady be the only ones who survive? Could the cats have been that successful in their worldwide extermination? Uh, I think not. I think eventually Charles and Mary will find other sleepwalkers. There you have it. It's it maybe, maybe there's still more out there. Uh, you know, and, and just to give everybody a heads up, uh, we will be doing a, a sleepwalkers anniversary AMA uh, in the coming weeks. Uh, and I will put out a call for questions. And, this is the uh, 30th anniversary of the release of Sleepwalkers, if you can believe that. Yeah. So, uh, so we'll, we'll be doing that soon. So uh, get your Sleepwalkers questions ready for that. Um, but in the meantime, uh, two kind of morbid questions to end our oh, show dear. out on. Uh, <laughs> Phil asks, and he literally addresses it, apologies in advance for the morbid question to follow. But if you had one night left on Earth, and we're told you could only watch one last movie, what would it be and why? Well, most people would probably answer with a favorite uh, comfort film, Mm. something that they love. But I would like to see something I'd never seen before that was really great. Okay, that's fair. uh, Movies I love are in my heart and in my head, and I can replay them on autopilot without, you know, without even watching them. Right. Um, So I would love to have an experience I'd never had before, before I die. And, uh, and I can speak with some authority on that. So That's that's true. Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, I guess it's not going to be Curse of the Snake or <laughs> Cult of the Cobra. Cult, Cult of the Cobra. Well, I've only seen that one and a half times, so maybe. <laughs> so maybe that would be the last. I don't think that should be your last one, Mick. I, I really, oh, okay. I, I don't. I, I think you stick with your original answer. Ghostbusters uh, Afterlife. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, all right, Eric. Not to sound morbid, but if you could choose. I have a morbid uh, fan base here. Uh, Yeah, well, you know, it is called postmortem. Eric, not to sound morbid, uh, but if you could choose your last meal, what would it consist of? And feel free to include multiple courses. courses. You know, look, here's the thing. I'm just curious what Mick the vegan would pick. Uh, Yeah, well, I don't think I'd be thinking much about what I'm going to eat if I know I'm about to die. Uh, No matter, (laughs) no matter what I eat, I have a feeling that it would be revisiting me. Uh, Uh, But I don't know, maybe a uh, a curry of some kind. Um, Okay. 
you know, a vegan chocolate mousse, even though I'd be about to die, I'd still give a shit about the animals and, and well, all that. I think, well, well, good. I'm glad, I'm glad that you stuck to your guns and uh, you're not going to order a, a big rare steak. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so you can you rest assured that won't be the case. Curry and a chocolate mousse. So <laughs> sounds good to me. All right, Mick, uh, that wraps it up for this week's AMA. And uh, thank you, everyone, for your questions and for tuning in. And by the way, if you're enjoying the show, it would really help us a lot for you to rate and review Postmortem on uh, Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd really appreciate that. And if you want to send questions for future Ask Mick Anythings, you can send them to Mick at Mick Garris PM on Twitter and Instagram. Or you can send them to me at Joe Russo tweets or at Joe Russo Graham on Twitter and Instagram, respectively. Thank you, Joe. And thanks for everybody out there. Thank you, Mick. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.